0: Good morning. morning. Happy Mother's Day to all in the room as well. You know, one of the greatest demonstrations of the gospel is the forgiveness that we extend when we do it to each other, right? Between, you know, family members, even members of the body of Christ, the world at large. One of the greatest ways we demonstrate the gospel. There's a famous account, many of you know it, in John's gospel where Jesus says to his disciples... When you love other people the way that I have loved you, very practical, right? After he had just done this you know, uh, amazing thing uh, to them, washed their feet, took on this position of a, uh, someone that was not his role, shocking, right? He became the house slave, so to speak, servant, and washed his disciples' feet. And he said, if you, when you love other people the way that I have loved you, in a counterintuitive way, in an unexpected way, in a humble way, he said, then people will know that you are my disciples. Huh? Then people will know that you are my disciples. There's a lot of unhappy people in the world today, I think, and people, unhappy people in this room perhaps today, even miserable people in this world, miserable people in this room, because of broken relationships. And often, it's the case for some of us, that we, it's happened so long ago, we don't even know it, right? The, the relationship has moved off our, our, our the front of our minds, but the pain that it's causing and caused in our life has not. We've forgotten it, but it hasn't forgotten us. When we choose to reconcile with other people who we have hurt or who have hurt us, our burdens are lifted, And often our buried pain is healed. That's what our message is about this morning. You have a copy of the Bible, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 20 through 26. And a message titled, Reconciled with Each Other. Reconciled with Each Other. Follow along as I read these words from Matthew chapter 5. For I tell you, Jesus speaking... That unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come The, the heart of the Old Testament religion, I want to keep in mind something as we think read these, these words. The heart of the Old Testament religion is not the law, okay, it's the covenant. We talked about this in the series of Genesis, not the law for between Abraham, when God gave this promise to Abraham, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to be your, your Lord. You're going to be my, 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 follower. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make a nation through you between the time God made a promise to Abraham, talked to Abraham and the giving of the law to Moses was over 400 years. For 400 years, there was no Ten Commandments. There were no laws whatsoever. There was only the promise of God. The law was introduced, when it was introduced, as a standard of obedience to preserve the covenant because the family had gotten very big. Right, the family of Abraham. By the time you get to Exodus chapter twenty, was two million strong. Right? those of you who have kids, those of you who have a family, you know, when you have one child or two children, you know, uh, I grew up in a family. All of us did. I, you know, I, the, the you could you could negotiate things at the dinner table. You could talk about things in the back seat of the car. This is how we do it in our house. You have to do your homework. You could you could do this on the fly. When you have six kids, family I grew up in, or a lot of kids, it's a different story. Then for my, there used to be a list, you know, on the refrigerator. We'd have this thing called family meetings, okay, in my family. That's what happened when the law came out. It was a standard of obedience necessary to preserve the covenant, to preserve the promise. But in the years near the end of your Old Testament, in the years after the exile, as leading up to the times of Jesus, even these words that we just read here, the law, follow me, became more important than the covenant. The Ten Commandments became more important than the covenant. And then in the midst of all that, the temple was completely destroyed. Where people actually ex- uh, conducted their worship, found the forgiveness and atonement of sin. And in those years leading up to the time of Jesus, the external obedience to the law became ascendant. It's the way people measured their faith, Right? We call it, some of us use this term today, and they used it then, legalism, right? Our faith had been reduced to external behaviors. Jesus calls it here, a religion without a heart, okay? That's what Jesus calls it here, a religion without a heart. When Jesus says, accept your righteousness, surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of the nation. They were the professional Christians. They dotted every I, crossed every T. You, have, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It was meant to be a shocking thing to say. It's like, if unless you're better than that guy or that lady, these sort of exemplary people who walk around as models... Of Old Testament or, or the Old Covenant conformity, you can never enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus wasn't trying to encourage us to outdistance the Pharisees, to outdo them at their own game. We'll call it legalism. He was talking about a whole different kind of righteousness altogether, a righteousness of the heart. Behind the overt act of murder, which is what he mentions verbatim, verse 21 you shall not murder is a disposition of anger and hostility towards others. See, that comes from the heart. Long before you, you know, plunge the knife into someone's chest, I'm talking about an act of murder, you've thought about it, you've nursed that anger, you've nursed that hostility, you've planned it, okay? That's what Jesus is talking about. Behind the overt act of murder is a disposition of anger and hostility. It's the resentment and the carried anger okay that jesus finds so destructive someone old covenant or new who has a righteousness that's what he says except your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the religious leaders for someone who has a righteousness that stems from the heart which is what jesus is talking about here you shall not murder here's my first point right you shall not murder really means do not nurse hate. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what's killing you. That's what's killing me. Do not nurse hate. It's interesting, too, what he says, verse 21. Pay careful attention to the Bible. You have heard that it was said that to people long ago you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, but it's interesting that right after he says that, he quotes verbatim, The sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13. So it's casual. It's almost like, you've heard it on the street. You shall not commit murder, but I say unto you. But it's very unusual because even in the previous chapter, chapter four, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, he says what is more typical when he's quoting the Bible. He says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, right? As it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But here, Jesus uses a different phrase. Why does he say You have heard it was said. Not because he's challenging the command, the sixth commandment. He's challenging its interpretation. You've heard that it was said, right? That's the way these guys interpret. Look at what else he says in verse, um, as he's teasing out this idea of not nursing hate. Anyone, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool be in danger of the fire of hell. He takes a lesser offense and gives it a greater consequence. Now, let me unpack this just for a second. Some of us you, you don't know what this means, you know, the, without a little bit of study. Rock, anyone who says to his brother or sister, rock, unfool. Both of these terms were let's call them um, a play school, playground um, words that kids would say to, you know, raka was an Aramaic word, so it's translated directly from Aramaic, right? It's a transliterated word from Aramaic. Raka means uh, empty-headed. It was a demeaning term. You're a nobody. You're an idiot, right? That's what raka means. And fool, translated from the Greek word more, is where we get the word moron. Both of these words, very likely, could be heard in the distance at any playground in Palestine. And Jesus says, listen, it says, they say you shall not murder. And if you murder somebody, literally plunge the knife in their heart, so to speak, you're gonna be uh, subject to the punishment, the you're you're, capital punishment, the sixth commandment. But I say unto you, if you just say what kids are saying in playgrounds all around here, you're gonna go to hell, that's shocking. If anyone else were to say that, it would be laughable, right? It's ridiculous. How could you possibly say that for me to just say something like rock or fool, you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're a jerk, means that I'm going to have not just the capital punishment, but he says, Jesus, you'll be in danger of hellfire. Well, he's trying to make a point. Jesus knew something that we all learn in life over time, that words have tremendous power to create wounds that run deep And last a lifetime. Right? That's what Jesus is saying for our benefit. Do not nurse hate. Why? Because words, even words, have tremendous power, right? To create wounds that run deep and last a lifetime. I listened to this podcast this week, maybe some of you heard it, by a woman named Alinda Villarosa. And she was based upon an article that she just wrote for last, I think it was last Sunday's New York Times, called Black Lives Are Shorter in Chicago, My Family's History Shows Why. And she was just telling the story of her family. Her family was part of her, her parents' family, I should say. Her, her parents and her grandparents, actually, were part of what they called the great migration of all uh, African Americans who moved because of the color line laws in the, in the early part of the 20th century all the way up to 1970. They went from the south to the north. Many of you know this. And they populated a lot of the northern cities. Hers family, her grandparents moved to Chicago. She grew up in Chicago for the first nine years of her life. But then many of those families, this was her story, The grass wasn't as green as people hoped it would be. I'm talking about African Americans and the Great Migration. So many of them began to move out of those cities, like Chicago, to other places. Her family went to a suburb of Denver, Colorado. She was only 10 years old. And she said her father went there first. Her parents went there. Her father was a big outdoorsman. He really liked it. Her mother checked out the schools. They were great. Although the neighborhood was largely white, the people seemed great. They decided to move there. They moved there. When they finally, the kids kind of caught up with their parents, she said, one day we were driving home and everything changed. And there was a racial epithet painted on the garage door of the house. And she said, the neighbors all came out and they were scrubbing it off so that we would, it, would, it would be taken before we got there, but they couldn't get it in time. And my father, she, did, she was only 10 years old, she goes, I hardly even knew what it meant. right? But my father was Devastated. And he said, We got to move. We're not going to stay here. She said, I never saw my father so depressed. But the neighbors who were so great, all of them, I believe, were white, all the neighbors just came out and they they loved my family and they said, No, you can stay. And they found out who did it. it was two doors over. A 10 year old, one of her classmates, was their paper boy. And the kid came over. He probably didn't know what he was doing either. And the parents said, you know, made him apologize, he did. It was one of these things, some of us have gone through this in our own little uh, stupid things we've done in life. I know my mother would do this to me, you know. <laughs> Thank you, Mom, you know. Uh, you know, you're going to apologize for what you did. So they did that. In a sense, it seemed all was well. But she said, they, you know, they, they washed off the word, but I couldn't erase it from my mind, right? And in many ways, that little incident she said, shaped her young life. Do not nurse hate. Whether you're on the giving or the receiving end, these kinds of words have power, right? They can, um, to, to, to shape, to challenge us, to, to create in us wounds that run deep and last a lifetime, right? Do not nurse hate. Second thing this passage tells us to the positive, right, heal your broken relationships, right, with God's help. What Jesus is saying here in this little parable, right, therefore, verse 23 and 4, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift at the altar, right, and go and make good on this broken relationship that you have with someone else. What Jesus is saying in this little parable is this, our relationship with God, we've been talking about this in the last few weeks should drive us to seek relationships, broken relationships with others whenever possible. And think about it. Jesus, again, his teaching, he sort of, um, he, he says things that are seemingly impossible to make a point. When he's talking to his disciples, he's in Galilee, right? We know this the Sermon of the Mount is from Galilee. Here we are. And he says, listen, if you go to make your, if you're going to, to worship God, if you're going there to offer your gift at the altar, and you discover along the way. You know what? I have a broken relationship with somebody. He says, leave your gift at the altar. Go make right on that and come back. Now, there's only one altar in Jesus' day. Right? There's not churches in every corner. There's one. It's in Jerusalem. 80 miles or 100 miles from where Jesus is talking. The trip in those days would take about a week. To be able to get all the way to the altar and say, okay, I'm gonna leave my, my, you know, my animal sacrifice here and I'm gonna walk back uh, for a seven day walk back to Galilee and make good on my broken relationship with my brother, my sister, my friend, right? Is, uh, is ridiculous, right? But Jesus is trying to make a point. The sheer impossibility of the scenario emphasizes the point, which is this if we don't seek reconciliation with people we have hurt or who have hurt us, we come to the altar in vain, right? Doesn't mean God doesn't love you, doesn't love me. He wants you to come to church whether your heart's gunked up or not. But some of us, you know, maybe the music's not the problem, maybe the preaching's not the problem, maybe the small group's not the problem. The problem is you've unresolved hate in your heart. You've unresolved relationships that God's saying, listen, leave your gift at the altar, go and reconcile with your brother and your sister, your friend, your parent, And then come and worship God. 1 John 4. Listen to these words. We love because he first loved us. This is so important. Because this is very, very hard work. God's not going to ask you to do this on your own. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen... Cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. Right? It's not a suggestion. And he has given us this command. Right? And notice this whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister doesn't say why. Right? What's why is not important. Whether it's you've hurt someone or they've hurt you. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. And he's given us this command, right? Love their brother and their sister. Now, Rob, is this easy? Pastor, is this easy? Oh my goodness, no. It's not easy. Does it feel good? I'm talking about reconciliation where you can, where where it's possible, okay? Does it feel good? At first, it doesn't. Is it capable of lifting your burdens and truly healing buried pain? I believe that it is, right? I believe that it is. Out of God's great love for us, right, we love, this is so important, because he first loved us. Listen, if God didn't love me, if God didn't, hasn't done and is doing a work in my life of redemption, of grace, of healing, you know, of, of, of experiencing the gospel time and time again, you know, every morning his, his mercies are new every morning, right? If I wasn't experiencing that kind of grace, I wouldn't be able to go anything close to seeking reconciliation with others. We love because he first loved us, but then Jesus says, listen, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. Listen, Jesus was, did, never sinned. Jesus never, in the sense, sinned against anybody. But he loved people. He got down on his knees to help people. He ultimately gave his life for people who sinned and said no thanks to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not easy. Out of God's great love for us, we're called to seek healing in our broken relationships with others. And listen, in many cases... You know where I'm going. It starts in your family, right? I mean, why is it family? Why is it friends? Well, because those are the th- people that care the most, right? You know, sure, I can go to my drinking buddies or my, 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 my friends and, you know, two or three rooms out. Of course, th- there's a lot of grace there because I haven't really offended them. They haven't really offended me. It starts in your family. And listen, guys, it's church family too. I've been a pastor now long enough, 16 years, and people have left this church, and people have come to this church from other churches. Now, sometimes it's because you know the, the preaching was got bad, boring, and you know, the music wasn't great, and and okay, that's happened sometimes. Or you know, just did, you know, got the family minister wasn't as good at this church as that church. That's okay. But very often, more often than not, it's because of a broken relationship. Because I had a I had a, I had a broken relationship uh, 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 with someone else. And I decided it was just easier to leave than to deal with that. right? Well, God still loves you, but he's saying, listen. right? Leave your gift at the altar. Go and get right with that person and then come. Right? It's not easy. No, but it will help you lift your burdens and heal your heart in the long run. Finally, Jesus says, don't put it off. Settle your matters quickly. Verse 25. With your adversary who's taking you to court. Now, it's a metaphor. He, now, it's, the metaphor is not someone going to worship in church kind of thing. It's someone who's being taken to court by their adversary. If You did something wrong, right? Settle matters quickly. Watch this. While you are still together on the way. So, so this idea, listen. While you're driving together to the court, right? Try to settle it then. Do it quickly. Why does he try to say do it quickly? Because when you don't, when I don't, it's self-defeating. You ultimately hurt yourself. See, over the course of time, you forget the relationship. I don't even know what the—I re- forgot about it, but it hasn't forgotten you. Settle it quickly. Do not nurse hate. Seek healing because you will benefit from it as well as someone else. Paul, the apostle, Paul will take it a step further. Listen to these words, verse uh, twenty-six of the fourth chapter of Ephesians: In your anger, do not sin. See, anger is not a sin. Carried anger is a sin resentment is a sin. I'm gonna be angry. I'll probably get angry before the day is over, but I gotta manage it and deal with it. It's when I carry it. It's when I nurse it, see? Then the acorn becomes a tree. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. That's another way of saying, settle matters quickly. What are you waiting for? It's not gonna go away, okay? And do not give the devil a foothold. You know it's interesting. I use that term. He talks about the devil as a foothold. The, the the New Testament writers talk about schemes of the devil. You know what they are? They're not what you think they are. They're not this you know incredibly um, you know immoral behavior. You know that's you know we think of these images of these you know of murder or drugs or something. You know what the schemes of the devil are in the New Testament? Unforgiveness. Right? Unforgiveness. A hard heart. You know, an unwillingness, anger, unresolved anger. These are the things that take us down. So I want to close our time, or almost most of our service here, with a video. How, is it, is, Rob, is, is this possible? Yes, it's possible. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. But can it lift your burdens and heal your, your buried pain? Yes, it can. And we had the opportunity to sit down, some of us, with Shannon Pitts, if you know Shannon, from our church, who had a long-standing Challenge with a broken relationship with her father and her brother that's turned a corner in the last, just last year or so. Watch this video.
1: I essentially didn't have a father figure. Over the years, I really didn't spend a whole lot of time with him, just some weekends here and there. When I was seven, my parents got divorced, and... My father was really heavily involved in drugs and suffered from mental illness. It was just a very, a time when I grew up really quickly at a young age and just witnessed a lot of damage that he had done to my family over the years. My father was a really bad influence on my brother over the years. In seventh grade, my brother dropped out of school and he became heavily involved in drugs and was in and out of different facilities. But I lived every day expecting that the phone might ring and I might get a call that one or both of them were dead or who knew what had happened. Seven years ago, I did finally get that call. It wasn't as bad as I anticipated it could be, but my father was found on the street, homeless, um, beat up by my brother. He had nothing, basically nothing with him, no money, no ID. And it was at that moment that I realized that I needed to be more involved in my father's life um, and take a more active role in helping him. That brings us to two years ago, um, I realized that my father got involved with a scam. I'll never forget the day that I was sitting in my office looking at my dad's financial information online, looking at his bank account, when I realized that he had gone and taken out a loan and given more money to the scammers. And at that moment, I felt completely helpless for the first time in my life. I'm, I'm generally not a person that gets very rattled. I mean, I feel like from day one in life, I've been very independent, very stoic, very matter of point, And things don't usually break me down. But at this moment, I felt extremely helpless. I started crying and I just didn't know what to do for my father. I didn't know how to rectify the situation and get him away from the scam and improve his life. I remember it was just a critical point for me where I had never felt that way before. And I just prayed about it and asked for God's guidance on what to do in this situation. As crazy as it was, I prayed about it and and God really put on my heart that I needed to move him up to live in the area with us. He moved into a senior community right here in Penfield um, and he's been here for a year now. We've spent a ton of time with him. My kids have gotten to know him. We've all developed a relationship with him. I've just seen all the joy that can come from this relationship. I'm a very independent person. I don't have a lot of really close relationships. And this has continued to reinforce to me the importance of relationship and how much happiness you can get from being in a relationship with other people. I did FaceTime my brother. It was the first time in six years since the day after he ended up homeless and that whole interaction had happened that they spoke to each other through FaceTime. But they have reconciled their relationship and have been able to renew that relationship in a a new and positive way. My father and brother could not get through life on their own and they needed help. God pushed me and guided me to be that help in their lives that they needed. I prayed and God gave me the strength to get through some really difficult times and guided me through many decisions that I had to make that led to my family's reconciliation with each other.
0: is it hard yeah it's hard but we can move in that direction and your burden can be lifted and your buried pain can be healed so I want to give us all a chance just a couple minutes to move in the direction of reconciliation my guess is I don't know this I don't think there's a person in this room myself included listening to me online who probably doesn't have an application for this challenge, this message, somewhere in your life. Some more acute than others. Some of you knew uh, your relationship or relationships five minutes into this sermon, right? Some of you know the pain. You don't even know who it is. You're not really sure. But this is what I encourage us to do. Can you seek that kind of relationship that Shannon did, you know, in five minutes and two? No. We can't do that. But what you can do if you're willing to do it, is simply identify, right? Ask God, search me and try me, open me, my heart, Lord, help me to understand who is it in my life? Whether I've hurt them or they've hurt me, doesn't matter, right? Who is it that I need to seek reconciliation? It starts by simply identifying it. So this is what I want you to do. Right now, if our elders come up here, they should be on their way, uh, and we're gonna take some time, I'll be here, just a few minutes in this service, some of you, encourage you, as soon as I uh, stop talking here in a minute, come right up here and allow someone to pray for you. What, what are you going to do up here? All you're doing is, is acknowledging that you have a relationship that you need to reconcile with. You have a name with you. You don't need to name it. You, God knows it. You know it. And all these elders are going to do is simply pray for you. All you need to give them is your first name. Right? My name is Rob. Let me pray for you. For the courage... And the, and the strength to be able to take a step forward. Some of you might need to do that right in your seat, more comfortable while we're singing or at least we're listening to this song, music. Maybe you just need to do it, stay seated. Some of you at home do the same thing at home. Use these couple minutes to allow God to begin to do something that seems impossible, right? To live out this passage to seek reconciliation, amen?